if you talk to people who invest, even in like in people who invest in like standard, like more traditional real estate private equity deals, they're like, I would prefer if my GP used less leverage. They're not IRR driven either. They're like, look, the, a lot of the downside, a lot of the risk in real estate is from the leverage. So I said before that we capitalize a lot of deals um, all cash, and we, it's, that's true. We frequently, though, will use like 30% loan to cost leverage. No one's afraid of that. Like the LPs, that, like, that's great. The LPs are fine with that. It's where you start to crank a deal where, you know, pre-stabilization, you're cranking it up to 65, 70% loan to cost. And some, some of these banks will do 80% loan to cost. You're just like, okay, like, you know, things don't have to go that wrong in a variety of ways before this deal gets really far into trouble. And the LPs don't want that. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to The Fort. This is Chris and I have on with me today Moses Kagan from Los Angeles, who is a partner of Adaptive Realty. Adaptive Realty is laser focused on the multifamily market in LA. He founded it in 2011 with 32 apartments and has now built a $100 million portfolio with over 600. I met Moses through Twitter um, and we've become kind of Twitter friends and he's been fascinating to follow and has shared a lot of kind of really in-depth insight into how the real estate industry works, how multifamily works, and so excited to kind of dig in on that. So thank you for joining me, Moses. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can we start by um, a little bit of background of who you are and how Adaptive came to be? Absolutely. Um, so the, the real quick version of the bio is I grew up on the East Coast, went to boarding school and college and thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer, um, kind of took a detour uh, into mergers and acquisitions banking uh, in London for a couple of years, came back to the States to start with the idea of starting a small tech company, which more or less failed. Mm-hmm. Um, in the process, sort of by accident, ended up buying a building uh, with my family and, uh, and in doing so got myself launched into the, the value add multifamily space. Although I should I hasten to add that at the time we bought that first building, I didn't even know the words value add multifamily. So, um, I'm, I'm really truly an outsider to the business and I've had to kind of figure out what I'm doing, uh, as we've gone along. And I, I think that's kind of responsible to a large extent for, for why, uh, the way that we look at things is so, so different from kind of the industry standard. And it different in what way? I, I think I know the answer to this and you tweet a lot about it, but, but why do you look at things differently or what's different about what y'all do? 
Yeah, so um, I think maybe let's let's talk about what the standard real estate private equity model is, and then we can talk about what, what we use. It's different. Standard real estate private equity model, whether you're you know a syndicator who's doing one deal or whether you're Blackstone, is in general to buy uh, a building that needs work, um, ideally with as little equity as possible and as much debt, as quickly as possible, add value to that building, and then sell it on. And uh, the idea behind that strategy is very simple. I mean, by, by minimizing the amount of equity and by minimizing the amount of time, um, you're maximizing the IRR. Right. And that's great both for marketing purposes. You get to tell everyone that you're generating these really high IRRs for your LPs. And also, crucially, from the perspective of the, the sponsor, the general partner, selling quickly crystallizes your promoted interest. So you're putting in the cash in your pocket. Right. So that's kind of standard real estate that private equity model preaching to someone who knows it way better than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the problem I think that I've identified with that model is prints these really high IRRs on, on paper, but um, it has the downside of vaporizing a lot of the value that's created through transaction costs and also through capital gains taxes. Yep. And I think that a big part of the reason why this model predominates in, in, in real estate private equity is that at least for the big boys, Blackstone, et cetera, they're playing with capital provided by non-taxpayers, so foundations and endowments and everything. And so they're not at all sensitive to the capital gains tax issue. Right. So for them, printing a really high pre-tax IRR is great. I mean, there's no question that's the smartest move. For an individual taxpayer, for an individual LP, sorry to talk over you, um, mm. who does pay taxes, I'm an and particularly if you're talking about deals in areas that have in, in strong markets, I'm not convinced that flipping these things quickly is the smartest way to proceed. Right. That, that, that's a good segue to what we we actually do. So our model is like almost entirely the opposite. First of all, we over equitize our deals. Like we've done tons of deals where we don't use any debt at all, at least prior to stabilization. So we buy the building all cash, we fund the renovations cash. Um, and we only use debt at the point where the deal is com- is complete, and we've released the units. Yep. Um, at that po- at that point, um, we will use debt, and, and and our goal there is to to lever out as much of the of that equity that we used as we as we safely can. Yep. Return that equity to the um, to the investors on on kind of a tax free basis. It's a debt finance distribution, so it's it's not subject to taxation as long as you use the proceeds for investment purposes. And then we our idea is to hold the buildings forever, because if you're in a good market and you have really nicely renovated buildings, and um, you're managing them well with with good tenants. Why sell that? You've you've got your equity back. You're generating very high cash on cash yields. What's the, like the only reason to sell that is because as a syndicator you want to crystallize your promote. But but from the perspective of the LPs, people are providing the capital. They want to just sit there in general and enjoy the the, the tax free compounding that comes from owning a, a good building in an improving area. Man, I love it. I have a lot of questions and I really wanted to chat about all this because I love where your head's at with it. When you say that the investors love sitting back and getting pretty much the tax-free distributions, and you had a tweet the other day that said kind of GPs uh, earn the LPs they get or something along those lines is, I think every LP actually enjoys it. I don't think 
most of them think about it because they are IRR driven or kind of short term, you know, thinkers. How did you sure. find the LPs that really enjoyed it and told you, you know, do more of that and less of selling and, you know, telling me about this IRR that you're going to get me? You know, that is a great question. Um, a big part of our earliest investor base came from people who um, started off reading my blog. Yep. And uh, so I, I don't really blog as much anymore, but for probably five or six years, I used to write daily Yep. and uh, about buying, renovating apartment buildings. And over time, people started to read it. And because I wrote consistently, they really did get a good sense for how I, I saw the world. And that, and that, and frankly, that the way that I saw the world uh, evolved over time, and they could kind of watch my, the evolution of my thinking in real time. Right. Um, I was actually sitting with an important LP of ours yesterday who, um, the way that we started doing business is they bought a deal that I flipped early on. Right. And um, they hired us to manage that property after they bought it from us. Right. And um, they got to watch, and I unfortunately had to watch as uh, the rents continued to grow and the operating expenses stayed pretty flat because it was a fully renovated building. Yep. And so I got to just see the benefits to them of just, they, they, they financed it pretty conservatively, just held the thing. And I mean, obviously it's probably at this point worth a multiple of what they paid me for it. And so, so, so one thing to say is that a big chunk of my investor base were people like that, people who kind of like, and I, sorry, I documented that sale uh, on the blog and, and, and probably people who read along with me saw as I became compl- increasingly sad about having sold those buildings. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's, that's one part of it. Another thing that happened to us very early on in, in adaptive is that we got linked up via our CPA with this really, really large family office. And they are a big California real estate family who uh, has been developing in California for three generations now. And getting to know them and their story, I learned uh, that to a large extent, the wealth generation, yeah, they're doing, they're, they're developing and selling stuff, but uh, a, a big part of the core of their asset base are just these buildings that they developed 50 years ago that they just they are fully depreciated now. And where they're getting annually in cash flow from these buildings, multiples of what it costs to build the buildings in the first place. Yep. So, what is so yeah, so it's like this object lesson in, hey, if you just hold these things, and Southern California in particular has been a place that has been just like on a tear for 50 or 60 years. Yep. If you just hold these things and finance them conservatively, there's just an enormous amount of wealth creation. And so... My thinking evolved, it evolved in public, and I came into contact with LPs who sort of already had learned this lesson themselves through their own experience. And I want to ask you more in a second about, I mean, to hear somebody that buys deals with all cash and does all, I mean, for anybody not in real estate, that is like the most obscure, crazy thing that you would say in real estate is I buy things all cash, do everything all cash, then refinance after. Most people, like you said, lever up quite a bit from the beginning. But I guess my question before that would be, do you think your model is scalable kind of as you continue to prove it out? And and maybe 
do you even want to scale it to where, you know, you own 600 units now, but could you own 60,000 units under this model? Um, great, great question. Um, so first thing I say is I own more like 350 or something. I, I, um, we also we manage another three hundred or so um, yep. fee basis. So yeah, um, so yeah, we're tiny in the grand scheme of things. We have, we have uh, we control probably one hundred and thirty million of worth of worth of real estate. So I mean, we're we're total minnows. Yep. And um, is this scalable? Well, the answer is it's certainly not scalable quickly. Like if what you're trying to do is build the biggest business you can as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. I think there's no question that you know. My understanding of what you guys do, and 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 another good example would be um, what Keith at Wasserman, Keith Wasserman at Gelt has done, and there's plenty of groups that have done extremely well by going out, improving properties, and selling. Right. So I don't think that my strategy has been optimal for building the biggest company that I could build. Right. Uh, and I have regrets about that. I mean, candidly, I wish. Uh, you know, if I if I could replay history, I probably would have gone outside of LA earlier in this cycle and and, and done larger deals and probably looked a little bit more conventional. But what, part of what is going on for me is that I really do appreciate, in almost sort of an aesthetic way, the beauty of the math behind what we do. We have on many occasions. Bought, bought a building all cash, renovated all cash, and then been able to refinance out 100% of the capital invested in the building. And then give that back to investors who then, you know, if we're doing things well, they should, you know, give us the money back right. and do it again. Yep. Go. Um, yeah, we and we, give it back yeah. Yes. And if you step back and you think about what that model looks like, sort of rolled out over, you know, end deals, what you end up with is this very, very, very large portfolio, which is incredibly thinly equitized, at least with investor cash. Right. If that makes sense. Yep. Right. And there's some, and then, so that, that to me is like, that's the dream. The dream is like buy, you know, instead of, instead of like, I don't know, buying four and a half caps in Los Angeles, right. you're basically buying seven, you know, buying four and a half, four and a half caps where you have to put down 35%. Uh, or forty percent to make the you know to, to to get enough debt service coverage to make the whole thing work. Right. Instead, by doing it the way that I'm describing, you're basically buying a portfolio of seven caps that you're getting to put down zero percent on. Yeah. Or or ten percent. Right. And these opportunities are like few and far between. It's definitely like needle and haystack stuff. And yeah. it's not. It's not. I don't think it's. It's certainly not scalable to sixty thousand. No way. You know, it's a it's a niche opportunity, and it's one that you know, depending on the year, you know, we maybe we can put out twenty million a year, maybe thirty, and maybe and frankly, like maybe there are a few other markets in the country where you could pursue a strategy like this. Um, so so it might be able to be a little bigger, but there, there's no way that it's ever going to be as big a business as you could build by doing some other strategies. It's just that it's very very elegant from my perspective, and it. It allows for a long-term hold, uh, and, and therefore it gives the LPs kind of what they're asking for. Are you able to sell, or is your kind of agreement with those LPs that w- if if we can, you know, execute and get most of your equity out, like you have a mandate to hold it for a certain amount of time, or is that kind of left to your decision? In general, it's a little bit of a mix depending on the deals, yeah. but in general, we do have the right to sell. Um, 
uh, it's and so there obviously there are scenarios where, for example, like let's say you've used up all your depreciation, you know, or let's say you know this this is the opposite of what's going on right now in Los Angeles. But imagine you have a neighborhood where, for various reasons, you think like is actually in kind of really serious decline. Right. Like of course there are reasons that you might sell a building, but in general, whether it's via the documents or whether it's more just like a philosophical alignment with our partners, everyone is kind of bought into the idea of a permanent hold. And I should say that part of the reason that people are okay with a permanent hold is because by refinancing out the vast majority of the capital, you've reduced their opportunity cost, right? Like it's a very different thing to say to someone, okay, we're going to buy a five cap and we're going to lever it up and you know your money's going to be stuck in the deal and you're going to be earning whatever, like a seven and a half if everything goes well or an eight or whatever the number is on the cash flow, right? right. Like that's cool. I mean, that's in this environment, like if you could really guarantee someone like an eight, like actually they probably should take that. But, yeah. but saying to them, you're going to be stuck in there forever. That, that's a tough pill for people to swallow. I would imagine. What we're saying kind of is more like, look, uh, you're going to have your money back in 18 months or you know, or 85% of it or whatever the number is. And you can go do something else with that if you want. And the levered yield on the capital that's stuck in the deal is going to be like anywhere between 15 and infinite, right? In the yeah. scenario where you get all your money back. Like that's a much easier sell to someone. Like yeah. you, you, there's there's both lower opportunity costs because you have your money back and the stuff, the money, the piece of the money that you don't have back, if any, is generating really eye-poppingly high yields. It's that's a much easier sale for a permanent hold than, than than a more conventional model. Yep. So why do you capitalize everything all equity up front to just create less stress on the kind of business plan, value add plan, you know, during the life of kind of getting it to that seven, seven and a half unlevered yield, or is there another reason? Yeah, no, that's that's a big part of it. Um, well, first, okay, a couple of different things to say. One is that in Los Angeles, if you want to buy the kind of stuff we want to buy, uh, you got to be able to close close fast. Like you, you just can't. How quick? You you can't. Well, I mean, I'm closing in 21 days. Oh, wow. Sometimes faster. Yeah. So you can't. You just can't say, "Hey, I know this is a super attractive deal, but please allow me to tie <laughs> it up and uh, like I'll close it 60 days from now." It, it's just like. I'm not saying you could never get away with that, but it's going to be harder. Right. Frequently, the buildings we are buying are in really rough shape. Yep. I mean, really rough. And so you're not going to get some conventional lender to lend on in a lot of cases anyway. Yep. So now you're into using either bank construction debt, which takes a long time to put on there. And then as you alluded to earlier, it's like just really painful to deal with. Oh, yeah. Like in terms of, construction draws and oh. and uh, site visits. And these deals are small, right? It's like a $3 million deal or something like that. And, yeah. you know, and you're trying to pay your framer, you know, as soon as he finishes and gets his framing signed off and the bank's like, Oh yeah, no problem. File your paperwork and a month from now we'll be, you'll be able to get <laughs> the guy. It's just like, yeah. Furthermore, we're not doing one of these deals at a time. I think we're currently renovating 10. So if you can imagine how painful it would be to do to have 10 different sets of cons- small construction draws, like that's a disaster. Especially if you're and with then, multiple banks that have multiple different oh, forms. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a oh, nightmare. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's sort of like, it's just, it would be intolerable. And then the, the way the, the alternative is 
is more like hard money, you know, where, where they don't care as much, but then you're going to pay, you know, seven, eight percent plus points in Los Angeles for our, my investors philosophically are like, Hey, wait a second. You know, I'm rich. Like I don't, I'm not, I don't borrow at 8%. I don't loan at 8%. I'm not yeah. a borrower at 8%. That's one issue. And that philosophically, and then technically or, or, or quantitatively, let's say, um, interest that we pay is like sort of leaks out of the system. Right. So it directly, like any interest we pay just basically ends up reducing the portion of the, the, the percentage of the total equity that we can return. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it, it, and, and our problem has never been raising capital. It's the, the deals are so good that we can raise the capital. The problem is finding the deals. Yep. So we've never needed, it's never been like, Oh, like, we can only raise five million, or at least it hasn't in a long time. And oh, we can only raise five million. Like, how do we spread that across as many deals as possible? Right. It's like, how do we find the deals to place all the capital? That we can bring? Yep. And so we're avoiding the pain of dealing with the construction lenders. We're we're not paying these extortion interest rates, and it's not stopping us from or our investors from doing future deals. You're not paying you know, interest um, rates on the on that. Are you paying like a pref on that money since it's equity up front, yes. or is there like a leniency yeah. on that first year or something? Well, we it's it, well it's accrued, so yeah. we owe the pref, but we don't pay it. Right. Yeah. And and the pref is like like on these deals, we're we're offering investors anywhere between like a five and a seven, so it's like actually cheaper than hard money. Wow. Okay. Um, like, yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like, what's why would we even? You know, it doesn't even make it doesn't even really necessarily make sense from our perspective either. That percentage um, point that you would be paying on a loan is worth everything to not have to deal with construction draws and all the headache of getting. Yeah. 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 It, it, exactly. And, and the other thing to say is that when you're talking to investors, it's like. They don't want to have a ton of leverage. Like the push for the leverage in general comes from the GPs who are trying to max the IRRs and get their, you know, and and, and get the highest promotes possible. If you talk to people who invest, even in like in people who invest in like standard, like more traditional real estate private equity deals, they're like, I would prefer if my GP used less leverage. Yep. They're not IRR driven either. They're like, look, the, a lot of the downside, a lot of the risk in real estate is from the leverage. So I said before that we capitalize a lot of deals um, all cash, and we, it's, that's true. We frequently, though, will use like 30% loan to cost leverage. Right. Right. No one's afraid of that. Yep. Like the LP is that, like, that's great. The LPs are fine with that. It's where you start to crank a deal where, you know, pre-stabilization, you're cranking it up to 65, 70% low the cost. And some, some of these banks will do 80% low the cost. You're just like, okay, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things don't have to go that wrong in a variety of ways before this deal gets really far into trouble. And the LPs don't want that. For sure. You would only want that if you're trying to get in and out in three years and every day, matters if you're holding it for forever you know that first year shouldn't impact you know years 15 through 20 in a deal that's right is a strategic advantage you have that we don't have in commercial that i think about all the time we leverage a lot of our stuff about 60 to 65 percent my biggest problem i wouldn't say it's a problem is i don't have fannie or freddie debt that i can refi an industrial building with so my even the leverage i can have on a refi situation it's it's hard in a short like in a 18 month to 2 year window to refi out you know 85 to 100% of capital i know in 
in multifamily, the uh, you know you can get a little bit more on a refi because you're you deal with a Freddie or a uh, Fannie loan. Is that what you're using to uh, ha- refi? So we we have used Fannie and Freddie before. Yeah. Um, typically, our loans are actually coming from regional banks. They're they're a little bit uh, they're they're like maybe a hair more expensive than Fannie Freddie. Yeah. But. The execution is way easier, and the um, servicing is way easier. Oh, yeah. Just the city, like you, you know, it's a, a certain time, a certain number of like visits from, you know, Fannie servicers telling you to like restrike your parking lot after a year, and you're just like, okay, guys, like, yeah. are we paying alone? Like, like, leave us alone. <laughs> yeah. So we're fortunate to be in a market in Los Angeles where I think banks feel pretty comfortable. Yep. You know, one of the one of the interesting learnings from from having starting started in this business, kind of like right as you know, right as the Great Recession was sort of starting and right. bottoming out, was that there was actually very little distress in the uh, Los Angeles apartment world. Right. Like there was tons of foreclosures and single families, and you know, one through four plexes. But those commercial apartment commercial when I say commercial, I mean five units or more. Those kind of standard multifamily loans actually performed incredibly well. And the reason is that even at the depths of the recession, the vacancy really didn't get much above 5%, depending on the neighborhood yep. in Los Angeles. So rents came down 15, 20%, but there wasn't a huge amount of vacancy. And so there, so that, so there wasn't a lot of distress. And so the banks, that was a kind of like the ultimate stress test. Right. And so they haven't gone crazy by any means in terms of what they'll loan you now, but they definitely feel pretty comfortable that, you know, if they're at like, they'll go to roughly 70% loan to value and they'll loan down to um, like a 1.2 debt service coverage ratio. So a dollar 20 in um, net operating income for each dollar of debt service. Right. Yep. Um, we actually are a little bit stricter. Like we, we want to have more of a cushion than the, like, so the banks are typically are often willing to lend us more than we actually are willing to take. Yep. So, um, so it's more, you know, we want to see probably more like a one four debt service coverage or something like that. Yeah. And, and so that, that'll have the effect of slightly reducing our proceeds. But, but yeah, in general, the regional banks will make loans here that I don't think that they would make in like a secondary or tertiary market. Yep. You're laser focused, even in just the conversation we've been having, you've made comments about, you know, it, they're very hard to find, but when we find what we're looking for, we know it. Um, I just think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about what your perfect kind of deal looks like. And maybe start mm. by talking a little bit about how you're finding them. Is it through the broker channel, off market, just being around? How do you find them, and what? When do you know you found something that, as you might put it, is your Mona Lisa? Sure, a Mona Lisa deal is where I can kind of see that right away that the unlevered yield uh, on the project is going to be like, let's say, like materially north of, north of seven, okay. because that's the scenario where I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be able to get all the money out, or we've actually. I had a deal, and I think that's this is maybe the one you're referring to because I called it my Mona Lisa. Where yep. it was a small deal, but we were we were able to to, to pull out 110 percent of the equity employed after like I think it was like 16 or 18 months. So we we like that was that's kind of like I'd hope to do that again in my career, but I'm not holding my breath. I mean yeah. that is really that's that's hitting everything perfectly, and um, it's pretty sweet from our perspective because we got 110 percent out. We were able to not only 
we were able to retire the accrued press in addition to, to, to whacking all the principal. Yep. So basically, once that refi closed, we were into our promote and we owned whatever it is, 30% of that building, I yep. think. Um, so, after 18, which that's like, that's a pretty sweet, so that's, that's why it's my Mona Lisa. I haven't quite, uh, managed to duplicate that, but we know absolutely that close. But even, even um, on that, you said that you're buying these nasty buildings. Like mm-hmm. what are you seeing that others aren't or what, how, what boxes do you need to be checked for you to make that buy? And, and again, how are you finding those, uh, sure. deals? So, yeah, so we're ruthlessly quantitative, um, and by, by that I mean we are utterly focused on the pro forma unlevered yield on cost. And when I say unlevered yield on cost, I don't mean like you know trending the rents. Like, what are the rents? You know, this project's going to take eighteen months. Rents have been going up five percent a year, so let me you know underwrite rents that are seven and a half percent higher eighteen months from. You know, it's like we're pretty strict about we underwrite rents that we could get today. So the equation is just, it's so, it's actually funny. I'm standing, I'm standing uh, in my office staring at my whiteboard and I wrote it up for a, for a perspective LP yesterday on there. Uh, and it's sort of like a visual reminder for me. It's a very simple equation. It's uh, in the numerator, rent, you know, forecast rent minus forecast annual operating expenses divided by, in the, in the denominator, the purchase price plus the cost of rehabbing the building. Yep. And that's it. And if that, you know, it, and that's going to spit out a number uh, anywhere between, you know, for the deals that we would look at anywhere from like, I mean, I, sometimes I still, I still, you know, I see stuff where it's like a four or a five and we're not interested. Yep. Once it starts to get to like, it, it depends. Again, this, the exact target will depend on whose equity we're putting out. So we have some investors who are very keen on Los Angeles who say, look, you know, yeah, it'd be great to wait around for a seven, but those are really hard for you guys to find. And I'm fine if we just do like a six or a 6.2 or whatever. And obviously that makes it a little easier for us to deploy the capital. So the range is kind of going to be anywhere between like six and seven, roughly. So that's not hard to like, conceptually, that's a that's like, that, 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 that you don't need a PhD in math to understand what we're doing. Yep. The trick is to be able to accurately forecast each of those variables. Right. So just going through them one by one, with respect to forecasting the rent, we're already managing a portfolio of like 650 units that are renovated pretty much exactly the way that we are going to renovate the next building. And I personally set all of the rents, the asking rents in the portfolio, and I approve all the tenants. So I know on a, like a day-by-day basis what a two-bedroom in a specific neighborhood rents for. Got it. And so that's constantly being um, recycled back into the acquisition performance. Yep. Same with the operating expenses. We've been operating deals like, you know, buildings like this for like 10 years now. And so we have a very good sense for what those are going to look like, not just in the in the near term. And like, you know, obviously OPEX is really low in the first year or two because everything's new. It goes, it trends up over time and we have a good kind of way of thinking about that on a normalized basis. Like what's this going to look like over, you know, over five, seven, 10 years? What do we, where do we think OPEX is going to be? Obviously, the purchase price is given to us. I mean, there's a listing price typically, or we know we can negotiate it or whatever. Um, And then with respect to the rehab, you know, as I said before, we're renovating 10 buildings right now. We're like constantly in the market signing construction contracts. And and I think I should say that um, we, our construction contracts are a little bit different than most in the sense that like, like we buy all the materials. Um, we actually will directly subcontract uh, with some of the key subcontractors. 
So we we can build, I can look at a deal without even walking through it. Oh, I should say also we've done a hundred. Yep. So I can look at a deal on paper and within 10 minutes, I can give you a pretty damn accurate read on what that unlevered number is going to be. Right. So that's the process. It's just like endlessly looking at deals to see if we can get find ones where 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 the numbers work. Where do we find them? Um, every once in a while, you can steal a building, right? Yeah. You know this, like you know, you, you meet the neighbor, and the guy suddenly. We had one where we owned a building, and the guy next door, my assistant, was talking to him, and he's like, "I want to move back to the Philippines, and here's what I want for my building." Yep. It's like, you know, we will pay that, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and actually, the Mona Lisa deal was one where the guy, the broker had a price at one price for months with no action on it because it was overpriced. Yep. And then this this guy, I mean, he, God knows what he's thinking. He dropped the price by like probably 35%, maybe more, in one increment. Yep. Like he didn't walk it down 5 or 10% each week or each month or whatever the way that like a normal person would probably do that. Yep. It was just like... Boom. And that was just like on the MLS and we just noticed it and it was like a race, our hair on fire to get the offer in front of him. And so he could sign it before, but you know, sell it, sign it before they got 28 other offers. Yep. But I think you're, you're occasionally going to steal stuff where either on or off market where there's just like really bad mispricing. Yep. But the vast majority of, and, and all I should say that we've been buying the same kind of deals, all cash for 10 years. And like, over time, the brokers who work the area have learned to call us when they have something that is cheap and beat up. Because um, we, you know, we're happy to let them double end the deal. They'll 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 earn the commission representing both the buyer and the seller. So it's like, and we're going to pay cash, and we're not going to um, we don't haggle about the price too much. You know, we don't we we never retrade in escrow. Like we 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 close at the price we said we're going to close at. Right. And you just keep doing that and paying them cash for 10 years and people are going to call you when they have deals that, think, that they think will work for you. So there's, we see a lot of stuff off market. Yep. But we have bought probably the majority of the stuff that we've ever bought has been off market. Yep. Um, and this is, um, you know, uh, uh, something that, you know, I've always thought this and I had it kind of drilled into my head uh, in that the book, uh, Risk Game, the Francis uh, Greenberger book, which is like one of the best books I've ever read about real estate. Yeah. Basically, the most important point in that book is to learn to see assets in a way that other people do not see them. Like if you're looking at the same, if you're looking at everything the same way everyone else is looking at them, then you don't have any advantage. And so you're just going to pay whatever the market is. Right. Um, and sometimes you'll be right. And sometimes you'll be wrong, but you don't, you're not really differentiated. So you're going to get whatever the, the consensus results are. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have to figure out a different lens to see assets. And once you do, once you have a differentiated lens, then there will be time. I'm not saying that like, it's not like I can walk around and like buy any deal because my lens is so differentiated and I can pay any price. Like, no, it's still really hard. But it just, there will be a bunch of opportunities sitting there in plain sight that other people just don't see because they don't look at it the way that you do. Yep. And the only way you can get that lens is just repetition and experience. Yeah. And well, and being creative too. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's a big, a big part of the learning in this business has been, okay, renovate a building. Oh, okay. What if we tried this? Oh, the tenants responded to that. Okay. We're in the next building. All right, let's try that again. But what if we try this? And like, Oh, that didn't work. Okay. Like, you know, 
it's be, it's basically trying a bunch of stuff until you develop a sort of a whole bag of tricks. Yep. Uh, you know, we're to the point with buildings in Los Angeles. I'm really this is not being hyperbolic. Like I can look at a building from the outside, and um, I can I can often tell you like what I could draw the layouts of the units without even going into them. Yep. And I know. Like my partner and I'll get to get it, get you know we'll go to an inspection and like before we walk into the building we probably know what we're going to do to you. It's just like there's just not that many. I mean, you just you know you run you play the same game over and over and over again. You just develop a bunch of tricks and you just keep applying the same stuff that works over and over and over. Once you um, own and, and and property management is especially in multifamily where people live and, you know, live their lives, the best operators usually have in-house property management and it's, it's no walk in the park. Is there a, is there anything that, you know, one or two kind of guiding points of why y'all have been successful in property management? And if there's somebody listening that, you know, hadn't bought a deal yet or owns it, but they use third-party managers, like what you have found makes a successful property management business? Yeah, I mean, I should start out by saying that we didn't like intend to be uh, to, to manage our own deals in the beginning. Um, in the beginning, and this is going back even to like pre-adaptive days, I did a bunch of deals before we started adaptive. Um, we when we were starting to finish the first ones, we kind of like went around to different property management companies and it's like, okay, guys, like here's what we want for rent, and they laughed at us. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we were like, no, we really know these neighborhoods, and these are really spectacular units, and we we really think we can get it. And by the way, we, our pro forma requires that we get it. Yep. And they were like, yeah, like good luck, and we got it. Like we we were just like, okay, well, I guess we have to lease them, and then we just had to figure that part out, and, yeah. and we did it. And then. Of course, once you're doing it, you kind of start to evolve systems and you make a lot of mistakes and you kind of just start to improve that stuff too. Again, we early on, it was more of a like, you have to do this, not you want to do this. Yep. Shortly thereafter, I sort of started to see the management business as this like very good source of recurring revenue. And and for us, remember that we're not selling. So John and I, my partner and I, like we we're not well, you know, particularly in the beginning, it was like we don't we need money. Yeah. And we're gonna and we need employees to help us do these projects. We need bookkeepers and we need development assistants. You know, we need we need bodies. Yep. But we don't you know, we're not gonna get into our promote on some of these deals for three, four, five, six years. So how are we gonna pay both for our own lives and also for the help we need uh in the interim? And so Building the property management business sort of became that source of evergreen revenue. And in the beginning, it was loss-making. In other words, I was subsidizing the management from our deal fees, yep. which didn't feel very good. Oh, yeah. But you could see, but yeah, but you could see, right? So I'm like broke and I'm putting my <laughs> deal fees in to like manage buildings for rich people yeah. <laughs> like, at a loss. Like, yep. like not, did not feel great. But I could see that it likely evolved into a business that we would be happy to own. And sure enough, like approximately for us, when we crossed like 400 units, it sort of broke even. And, you know, at 650 now, the property management fees cover the entire cost of the platform, like both the management people and also all of the development people in the office and the insurance and all that stuff. Yep. So it's a real, like, we're at the point where the, the, the 
the the property management basically stabilized and supports the entire platform. So, which means that if we had to go a year or a couple of years without doing any deals, we could do that. That is the dream situation in the real estate business. I feel I, I talked to so many sponsors that their kind of opco management co is subsidized mm-hmm. for so long or it's break even and and then you and then it's what what y'all have or or others is they finally get it there and then they go sell everything and they're kind of back to square one whereas you know yeah yeah it's a nightmare it's you a gotta nightmare. rebuild it yeah. it is yeah. um yeah we are as a company getting into our big initiative this year is taking property management in house um and so for the same exact reasons that you've mentioned, uh, where it's scale yeah, now, we can do yeah. it profitably, and you you will yeah, you will I, manage uh, stuff better that you own than anybody else will. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is that look, there's so there's the argument from the perspective of like what it makes sense for the GP, but it's it's also important to recognize that it makes a lot of sense for the investors too. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, management. I'm sure you know it's it's all really judgment calls, right? It's yeah. like okay, we've got this problem. It's going to cost this much. It's going to upset the tenant. What do you want to do? Do you want to put a Band-Aid on it? Do you want to really go in there and solve the problem? And these are not easy questions to solve, and they recall, but, they, but, but step one is to at least be like have your incentives aligned with the other owners of the building, right? Like it's, you know, you, so, you know, my general move when we're man—it's not in all cases, but 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 almost always, when presented with the option of putting a bandaid on or doing what it's actually going to take to solve the problem, I'm gonna I'm gonna opt for the latter. And that's like a, another a, a kind of a fee management company may look at like, is like, well, if I go to him with that, well, you know, he's gonna fire me as a manager, so let's just bandaid it and move on, and it'll be someone else's problem five years from now or whatever. Yeah. But as, as an owner, you're like, no, we're going to do what makes sense for the building because like, I'm going to be sitting here 20 years from now managing the same thing, and I might as well have dealt with it when, you know, <laughs> when the problem first emerged rather than putting Band-Aids on it. Yep. I've got kind of two more business questions, and then we'll go personal. Another reason why you find that people often sell, uh, whether they're kind of professional real estate owners or you know just somebody that's owned a building for a long time is... The building depreciates the capex requirements to keep it up or big and mm-hmm. either they don't want to borrow money to do that or they don't have the money to make the improvements on your sure. end you're holding these things kind of infinitely are you keeping like a reserve line item for just kind of capex to build up over time or are you just kind of penciling in that you know if a roof needs to be replaced down the road or if some major deal yep. comes it, it could be something that could be kind of financed yeah, so um, one thing to say is that remember that on our rehabs, we are literally, uh, maybe I didn't say this, right, we are literally replacing all of the systems mm-hmm. or almost all of the systems. So, like, we're putting new roofs on, we're putting, we're doing, we're redoing the entire, all, all new plumbing, all new electric win- windows, doors, um, upgrade the foundation, you know, oh, anything, wow. upgrade the drainage. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's extremely capital intensive, but we are ripping these buildings down to the studs. And, Part of the reason is that because, I mean, it's helpful because it allows us to reorganize the buildings in ways that optimize the the achievable rents. But another thing to say is that we are, you know, we're we're fixing all the stuff that we're going to now, you know, and renewing all the stuff and knowing that we're going to be owning this building 10, 20 years from now. Right. And so, um, so, so the answer is that um, we do 
uh, over time now as we're getting into kind of managing some of these buildings for like getting on to 10 years or whatever, certainly we're having to spend on like uh, superficial unit remodels, you know, new yeah. countertops sometimes and, and that kind of thing, you know, um, starting to have to redo, we do, we use all hardwood floors and, and obviously at a certain point you start to have to think about refinishing those, yeah. things like that. Um, so those are not, you know, but, but the key thing is that the main items, like your, the, you have new plumbing, like you probably realistically are not going to have problems with that for 20, 25 years. Um, so, so that's the first thing to say is that we're not, you know, we, we basically, by, by resolving these, these CapEx issues up front, we're not, we shouldn't be looking at large outlays um, uh, for, for a good long while. We do not reserve for those because it, it's just like, look, like, what am I going to do? Reserve over 15 years for the roof? Like, what, what will end up happening is um, we is some combination of funding it from cash flow and funding it from refi proceeds. Uh, and the and the investors look like um, the, one of the things, and we've kind of wrestled with this. Like uh, from an investor relations perspective, it's probably a good idea as an operator to kind of like smooth distributions, so that people like feel like they're getting okay. I can count on getting whatever it is, like you know, a couple thousand bucks a quarter or whatever the number is. Um, we have opted not to do that. We're like, look, we're gonna. Like when there's money, we're gonna it's go it's going out. When there's money, we don't need it's going out to you as quickly as we can get it out to you. But if we need to do work, we're gonna do work. And like you're gonna have to be big boys or big girls about uh, managing your own cash flow. Um, and just with the understanding that we're gonna try to get you your as much of your money as quick to you as quickly as we as quickly as we safely can. So it's not great from an IR, from an investor relations perspective, like probably reserving in the way that you talked about would might make sense, but from, or may, may optically might be better. But we just, I always have just opted for like, look, the investors are, are adults and, and we'll get, they, know, they should know that we'll just get them their money as quickly as we can. Yep. Any observations you've had of maybe it's something that you've done or that you've just observed, like, where are mistakes made in the multifamily value add space, whether that's somebody that's experienced or somebody that's inexperienced? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, uh, there's just such a long list. I mean, I, I call, actually called on a deal, um, you know, it's a small deal. Uh, actually, like I probably could see it from my office window here uh, where I think they're, they're asking like $2 million for it. And I was like, oh, I think it makes sense. It's a renovated building. Like, that too, probably makes sense to me. Like one traveler, guys like, oh, well, we're, we're we're into it for significantly more than that. Yep. And I'm like, you're trying now. You're trying to sell a building for two million, and you're into it like net because even if you get your asking price at two million, right? Like your your net proceeds once you pay the brokers and all that stuff. You know, you're gonna you're netting what one nine one eight five something like that. Yep. And it's like like so you're you're in for significantly more than one seven, and you're hoping to net one eight five. Like that doesn't sound like a very good deal to me. Like yeah. what, what were you guys? You know, what were you guys doing? There? Um, and I, what was going on is that they radically underestimated what the construction expense yep. was going to be. And I my my understanding anecdotally from talking to kind of everyone in the real estate world is that. Construction prices have have run on everyone and all you know in all over the country and every product type, but I can tell you that like specifically in Los Angeles, construction prices have gone crazy, and it's because there's fewer and fewer places for construction workers to live yep. like in inside the city. Like as rents have gone up, it's just like they can't afford, so they're living further and further out, and there's fewer and fewer of them who are willing to drive in, and they can command higher prices, and so that just like 
goes all the way up through the chain. So you have these people who underwrite, you know, they're, I mean, people, I'll talk to everyone so often. I'll call me and be like, yeah, I'm like underwriting 30K a door or whatever to do like a full gut rehab. I'm just like, you are, you have no idea what you're, the buzzsaw that you're about to run into. Yep. So that's, that's one. It's a, it's a failure to, to, to appropriately um, uh, estimate construction costs is a big one. And then there's, there's examples of like misallocation, right? Like spending on things that neither, get you rent nor appreciably hold down future OPEX. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't want to really, I don't, I, I'm going to be a little bit vague in this, but I don't want to really like make any particular person feel bad. But like, I, I saw one where a guy spent like an enormous amount of money doing a very elaborate routine on like the driveway and parking area. Right. Like, opting for like the most expensive material that you could use basically to like resurface that. Yep. And it's just like, dude, you, <laughs> like that's a disaster. <laughs> like yeah. don't like, might as well just like lit that money on fire because the tenants don't care what the paving of the driveway looks like. And the life of what he did is not going to be appreciably longer than it would have been by doing a cheaper method. Yep. So, it was just, you know, it was, it was like the guy's learning and it's, it, we all, God knows I've made a million mistakes myself. So I don't want to, you know, it's people, that's, that's part of the, the, the process is learning, but you really, you really have to be thinking with every dollar spent on any project, it's got to be like, it, you, it has to be purposeful. You have to be thinking, is this accretive to margin? Long yep. term? Yeah. No surprise there. I mean, especially as assets get more fully priced, the, the, the margin for error on, construction costs or anything really becomes slim and yeah all right a couple personal ones and then we'll we'll bring it home uh you sure. might have already mentioned it what is your favorite book yeah so you told me in advance that i was going to have to answer this question and i've been thinking about it all day so definitely right now my favorite real estate book real estate book is that that francis greenberger book uh risk game i just think the guy, the guy just he built an enormous real estate business while also building a really interesting literary agency. Yep. On the side, kind of like as a hobby on the side, and also dealing with some fairly significant like personal challenges in his family. Mm-hmm. And the book is like just totally he's he's very raw in terms of how he describes it and 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 how he went through those things. And I just. It, it it was exceptionally meaningful to me reading it, uh, just just in light of my own, you know, going through various career failures and trying to build a business and all that stuff. I think that book was was, was real right up there. And then, I mean, this is going to sound really dorky. I read a lot of history separately from the business reading that I do. Yep. And um, this is, I mean, we are really getting in the weeds here. But um, <laughs> I, I, there's this book, there's this book called Dreadnought by an author named Robert Massey that is about, of all things, uh, the Anglo-German naval race in the end of the 1900s. Wow. And I, it was, the reason I'm bringing it up is that um, I was probably in seventh grade when I discovered that book. And I don't remember, I think I was like in Barnes and Noble or something. And my mom had a policy of always buying me whatever book I wanted to read. So like, I, I don't know, I guess I picked this book up and, and I read it. It was like a 500, 600 page history book. And I just, I couldn't, the feel, I couldn't believe that there were books like this. Yeah. Like it just, it was like, I, I had been interested in, up to that point in like war and, and, and reading, I don't know, fiction. And I was like, 
But this, it just, for whatever reason, it was about power and international diplomacy. And it just, it blew my mind because it, I just didn't realize that there were books out there that were like, that hit exactly my interests the way that that did at that particular time. And it led to me reading a ton more history and, you know, that kind of carried me through high school and I won a prize for high, and it got me into college. Like it, it, it was very meaningful to my intellectual. Yeah. I love it. If you could give your 21 year old self some advice, what would it be? Oh man. Um, it's a, it's a little hard to say. I mean, because I think it's hard to disentangle. I, I had a lot of, I thought I was going to be a lawyer and then I was an investment banker and I was kind of a crappy investment banker. And I, then I did a crappy tech company and kind of fell ass backwards into real estate. And, and then really in some ways, like the evolution of adaptive was, was almost like more from like being broke and having my first kid and having a real estate license and some knowledge and being like, okay, like I better like do whatever it is in front of me to make money. So I, what I'm trying to say is that I didn't, how I got here was not like some master plan. Right. It was, it was from, it was a bunch of accidents. And then over time, taking advantage of opportunities in front of me and thinking about them and, and then creating a vision. Yeah. So it's hard to disentangle. It's like, so maybe all of those experiences were, were critical to get me where I am. So it's hard to say like, Oh, go back and tell your 21 year old self to do something different. Cause maybe I needed to do that stuff to get where I am. Yeah. But um, all that being said, I think that, no one ever sat down. My parents were like hippies, right? Like my dad's an artist and he was an art professor. My my mom worked um, in New York State government. They're, they they were in the real estate business a little bit, but they're not um, they're not particularly financially motivated. Although yeah. they've done pretty well for themselves. No one ever sat me down and was like, "This is how business works. Like, here's what an asset is. Here is what a cash flow is. Here is how you value an asset based on a cash flow. Did you know that if you can figure out how to improve the, the cash flow building, the asset price goes up? Yeah. Like, just like the basic kind of investing and business one on one stuff. I think that I would have had a totally different under. I would have brought that understanding, even if I had done the same jobs, like even if I had gone into investment banking, I would have had such a better understanding of what the hell we were doing when we were pitching clients. Yeah. Like why would I, like, I was just thinking the other day, like we used to go and show people like, Oh, your company can sell for 10 times. Right. Literally no one mentioned to me that that was a 10% yield on the product, on the, on the purchase price. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, like no, in my entire, like two years or whatever, best banking, no one was like, huh, that's how that whole thing works. <laughs> and, and maybe this is me just not having corporate finance background, but like, I would have thought about things totally differently and I would have behaved differently and I would have pitched things and meetings differently. And so I educated myself about all of that stuff later. Yep. Um, you know, through reading the Berkshire Hathaway letters and Howard Marks and all the good value investment stuff, and um, and and I honestly on Twitter and 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 I should say all the stuff that Brent Bishore has written, and you know, I, I, so but that I, but I'm 30. I'm actually I just I was about to say I'm 30. I'm 40. Yeah. And that that education really took place maybe from like you know 34 to now, and it. Uh, it would have saved me a lot of time if someone had like grabbed me by the ear and sat me down and explained that to me when I was 21. Yeah. 
That's, that's awesome. The, the question then would be, would you have listened when you were 21? That, that would have been my biggest problem. <laughs> no, man, I was drunk the whole time yeah. I was 21. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, one more. If we had to come back on the podcast, and, and maybe we will, uh, 10 years from now to confirm a crazy prediction that you had about the future, what's something that you think might be going on in 10 years that not a lot of people are seeing? You know, that's, that's a, um, that's another one that, you know, you, you sent me that question in advance. I appreciate it. Cause I really been been thinking about it today. And this is maybe going to get a little, a little bit of the Twitter weeds here, but there's, there's kind of this, there's a big movement in the tech world right now towards like remote work basically yep. and push, you know, trying to set companies and teams up, uh, uh, so that people can work anywhere. Yep. And that you know, a lot of that flows out of like the, the Tim Ferriss, like five hour work week, lifestyle design, like go live somewhere where it's cheap and you don't have to make as much money, like that whole lifestyle arbitrage stuff. To me, that is all being, um, the, the, the root cause of all that is like screwed up land use planning in major coastal metros. Yep. Like it shouldn't be so expensive to live in LA. It shouldn't be so expensive to live in San Francisco. Like from a societal perspective, you want your most productive people to be able to cluster and like have reasonable lives where, you know, where they're not like, you know, de- where they're not struggling to make their rent payments. Right. I recognize, by the way, how ridiculous this is as a real estate guy to be saying this. But yeah. um, so what I expect over time is that uh, over the next 10 years, I think, I hope, and I think that those major coastal metros are going to get smarter about land use. And um, I don't think it's like, I, I'm not expecting some like, you know, we're not going to double the number of apartments in Los Angeles. Right. Like it's not, you're not suddenly going to be able to live here for $500 a month. But I think that, you know, whether it's SB 50, which is currently being debated in the California legislature right now, or by other means, we are going to allow people to build more housing and uh, in, in these coastal cities. And so I think that while a lot of people are expecting work to kind of spread out, to a large extent, driven by these high costs, I think that you may. I think you may actually see that the coastal metros sort of get their act together uh, in this regard and allow make it more reasonable for people to stay here, and that that will have very positive economic growth effects for the country. Like having more people be able to live in the most productive places yep. uh, and earn more income and have less, you know, relatively less of that income go to housing. Um, I think it's very good for the country. It's very good for those cities, and it's also very good for the people involved. So that would be my kind of like counterintuitive prediction. I love it. Well, we'll we'll do our best to check in on it in ten years. I I agree uh, <laughs> so much with you that so much of our housing problems um, could be alleviated uh, very easily by um, unlocking kind of land use and. Uh, making it more enticing for private development to occur in places that it's damn near impossible or there's too much government kind of oversight. Um, exactly. All right, Moses. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. It's great to chat with you and and I hope to meet you in person soon. I, I think I might be meeting you at, uh, at Capitol Camp in Columbia. Are you going again? Indeed. Oh, yeah. I'm like, uh, I'm the biggest fan. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah, no, no, I had a great time last year and uh, definitely going back. And I will be delighted to nerd out with you about real estate there this year. We'll do it, man. Well, thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks very much to you and to all your listeners. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.